and welcome to the Hack Your Mindset podcast with me, Jenny Winterleach, the Mindset Hacker. So wherever you are today and whatever it is you're doing while you're listening to this, settle in and enjoy the ride. Morning, morning, everyone, and welcome to another one of our live question and answer sessions. And I am thrilled this morning to have Georgia showing. Good morning, Georgia. Morning. Hi. Um, Georgia is a fabulous lady involved very much in the Lusitano breed and in a sport that you've probably heard from me talking about before, which is working notation. And we're going to be finding out more from Georgia about the fabulous breed, Portugal, what it's like out there and, um, and what's going on in working egg. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Georgia, and introduce yourself to our, our audience. Uh, hi everyone. Thanks for having me, Jenny. It's really nice to be here. Um, Bit about myself. I've been involved in horses since since I can remember, really, um, from a completely non-horsey family, um, but grew up in an area where there were horses sort of everywhere. So I was very lucky when I was young. There was always something in the village that I was allowed to ride. Um, stuck with horses uh, all the way through school and then left school after my GCSEs and started working with horses straight away. Um, my first job was polo and showing horses, and I went. I always had a love for dressage, so I kind of worked my way through a, f a few jobs in um, livery yards and other disciplines, and then eventually ended up having a job in the dressage yard in um, Cowfold. And I was there for about three years, um, and they were great. That was my first kind of introduction to dressage and chance to ride proper dressage horses. Um, then I met my husband, Paolo, who is Portuguese, and he's also a dressage rider. Uh, we moved then to Portugal, where I spent seven years living in Portugal. Um, and whilst I was out there, I began the uh, Association for British Working Equitation, um, took over the running of the sport, ran it from um, whilst I was living in Portugal for two years. And then in 2016, moved back to England um, to kind of, for lots of reasons, but one of them was just because I wanted to put, be able to put more time and effort into the sport. Um, yeah, and now I'm the president of the Association for Working Equitation. I'm kind of responsible for the growth and the governing of the sport uh, nationally. Um, and I also have a dressage training yard in, at the moment, East Sussex with my husband. Uh, we Obviously, because he's Portuguese, we're specialists in Lusitanos, but we train and um, have horses of all breeds in uh, livery with us, um, focusing mainly on dressage and working equitation. Uh, yeah, and we train people, horses, and um, buy and sell Lusitanos as well. Wow, amazing. So I know you just kind of go, yeah, so that's what I did, but wow. <laughs> Okay, so tell us a little bit more because I am absolutely fascinated because I have not been there and I'm desperate to go. Tell us more about Portugal and the way that the Portuguese are with their horses and these fantastic things they do. Because some people may never have heard about the amazing like parades and parties and things that they have and, and what goes on out in Portugal then with, with the horses? Um, I, th I think there's a, it's, I find it quite hard to talk about um portugal there are definitely areas of the the equestrian world in portugal that certainly when i first moved out there were quite shocking to me um the horses are definitely ingrained in them a lot more than i think they are in our kind of culture and in our blood in england they really do have horses in their in their blood in portugal um it's quite rare unless you're kind of only living in the center of lisbon or something even when you're living in the center of lisbon 
it's quite rare to meet someone who doesn't have some kind of connection with horses, whether it's an uncle who's a breeder or, um, you know, they rode when they were young. You know, it's very rare to meet somebody who has had ha absolutely no contact with horses at all. Um, and they really, it, I think they're seen, I think they're, they have a different outlook on the, on the animal. They are seen as an animal um, rather than a pet, but they do that in a kind of loving, respectful way as well. It's, it's difficult to understand, but it's definitely part of their culture um, in a very different way to the way it's a part of our culture here in England. I find that quite difficult to explain. Um, the way that they look after their horses uh, or the, the kind of, they are a lot more traditional in the way that they keep the horses. Um, it's definitely becoming kind of closer to the way we do things over here and perhaps, you know, other countries like Germany and stuff. It's getting closer and closer to that now. I think as as the breed gets better, there's more riders getting doing very well in the in the kind of three main disciplines, especially in the dressage. And because of that, they're evolving a lot more in the way that they're they're taking, you know, the, the way they take their care, take care of the horses themselves. Um, but there are definitely good things to be taken from the way they do things as well. Having spent seven years there, the way we now manage horses ourselves, um, we've definitely taken a lot from uh, the way that the Portuguese do it, but also try to maintain some of um, the way that we do it here in England as well. There's kind of a mixture of both. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that was sorry, Jenny. Um, sorry, Jenny. No, 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 no it's perfect. It was I fine. Where I, I, was going I, I completely hit the wrong button. That was all. <laughs> it was a killer question. I nearly lost myself completely. Okay, so um, tell us a little bit more about the types of things then that are that are different because I think it's always fascinating to learn without judgment, without um, any any kind of good or bad about it. Um, but what it is that's different in the way that they're kept, what it is that's that's changing. And, and someone's said here as well, can you please expand on what you've taken from Portugal? Because we're yeah. interested in that because you, you've got knowledge of that world and, and those of us that haven't, haven't. So we're kind of going, okay, things different. What, what, tell us more. Okay, um, it was probably easier to start at kind of the, um, in a few terms, if you, if you look at it from in the kind of lifespan of the horse, um, I think if you're, I don't want to generalise, so I apologise if I upset anyone by anything that I say. But um, I think in general, in this country, uh, when we're breeding, quite often people are breeding from a mare that they love or a stallion that they love, and they're breeding one foal, and that foal will be handled from day one from birth. Um, by the time it's kind of two weeks old, it's happy to be led around on a head collar. Um, and they, you know, we're always seeing photos on Facebook of people cuddled up with their foals in the stable and things, and they're very much um they're, de they're very much raised around people from word go in portugal um the majority of the breeders in fact i don't think i know any any that don't do it this way they are the mares are out in a herd um so the foals grow up in a herd environment um their contact with humans is limited so they they kind of might have a human that goes and feeds them twice a day but they're certainly not not being handled by humans daily um, they're probably handled at around six months when they're separated from the mares. Um, and that will be literally like maybe a week of um, time inside a barn or in time inside a stable or something. And then they're returned out into a, into the field in, in a herd. And they're very kept, they're kept very much naturally um, until they kind of reach the three, four age. 
um, mark where they're brought in to then become kind of working animals. And I think uh, when I first moved out there, I it was completely the opposite of everything that I was used to. So I didn't necessarily see the benefits of doing things like that. But certainly having spent time there and having worked with foals, both bred here in England and also horses that have been bred out there, I think um, if you go back to kind of horse psychology and what has now perhaps been labelled natural horsemanship, whereas in Portugal it's almost like common sense, it's what they... The, they haven't overthought things a lot. They kind of do things in a very traditional, um, traditional way. And I think that because of that, they understand the psychology of a horse, perhaps um, a little bit better without labeling it anything. It's just kind of like the way things are done over there. And so when you have a three or a four year old that you're bringing into the stable and you want to start backing the horse, or you want to start teaching it to lunge. In Portugal, you, you have a three or a four year old who is wary of you and um, your job is to kind of gain the trust of the horse, whereas perhaps over here you might have a, a little bit of a, an obnoxious three-year-old who thinks they can climb all over you um, and they see you as kind of part of the herd or they see you as mummy who comes and feeds me and brushes me and gives me tidbits every day. Um, and then you are then having to instill discipline. So personally, in my experience, what I've, what I've learned is that it's actually easier to gain a horse. It's actually easier to work with a horse when you're trying to gain its trust than it is to work with a horse when you're trying to discipline it because it actually over, it sort of over trusts you. It doesn't respect you anymore. Wow, that's brilliant and absolutely fascinating as well. And it just makes so much sense to me. Um, but presumably out in Portugal, though, they've got a lot more land available, a lot more space yeah. available do that like you could we just couldn't do it in England like we have these tiny little fields if they get anything at all kind of thing okay so um so that's kind of part of the the training and the breeding element and that side of things that you've brought back what else would you say you've brought back with you from Portugal around you know the the training maybe or the ethos or the way that they are with their horses is there anything like that that you kind of you you think you do differently compared to the normal kind of British way and there's no, like you said, there's no judgment. There's no good or bad. And, and we have yeah, to, no, there's no other way of doing it. it which I'm just fascinated by different culture. Is there anything? Um, there? I, I think, um, I think I also have to remind myself sometimes that there's a large chunk of my, I mean, really until four years ago, all of my real kind of professional um, life with horses was spent in Portugal. So my main experience of being involved in the professional horse world is in Portugal rather than in England. So um, uh, I, have to, I have to be careful that I don't kind of um, uh, mix it up in my own head that these things are solely Portuguese because it's quite, it's quite possible that since I've been back here, I found that actually the professional you know people on that that level here in England do the same things but um certainly uh sorry I've lost my train of thought completely basically I, th I think the way that uh the Portuguese manage the horses is in a much more um disciplined way in terms of what's expected of the horses so there's a, I think there's a good I think they're very good at, at uh kind of laying making sure the horse knows what its job is um, and it has very clear boundaries in terms of what's expected of it but also what it's what is not acceptable for the horses to do whereas um, here in England um, I think sometimes that's what we see a lot with owners when people send horses to us and stuff the kind of boundaries that have been set for the horses are a little bit 
blurred. Um, the horses don't always completely understand what is being accepted, what is being expected of them, but also what is unacceptable um, in terms of their behaviour. In terms of management, um, I think, again, I think it's evolving a lot over there. But certainly when I first moved out there, turnout for horses that were being worked. So from the age of four or five years old was extremely, extremely rare to visit a yard um, of a professional rider and see that they had paddocks to turn their horses out in was almost un unheard of. Um, and I can remember comments from people when we built our stables in Portugal and built kind of purpose built stallion paddocks, the comments from the kind of local uh, the local people about the fact that we could lunge our horses in our stables because they were so big and um, the fact that we were a little bit crazy turning our horses out. Um, you know, I, I think back on that now and I laugh a little bit. So definitely we kind of injected a little bit of what was very normal over here um, in terms of turnout, big beds, you know, stables that were a little bit bigger um, because, again, it's still fairly normal over there to see horses in bays or in two bays that have been knocked through to a stable, so very small stables. Um, but again, it's, it is really evolving over there. And I think that people are learning over here as well, certainly within the Lusitano world, just mainly the world that we're involved in. I think people are starting to understand a little bit better the way that these horses certainly need to be managed if you want them to do the job that you want them to do, because people often go over to Portugal and see the horses you know, behaving in one way um, and doing the job that they'd like them to do. And then they buy them, bring them back to England, completely change the way they're managing those horses um, and then see a massive change in the behaviour of the horses as a result of it. And I think that um, I hope that we're that that we are helping those people who buy horses from Portugal and bring them to England to understand a little bit better um, how they can help the horses by managing them in a similar way to the way that they would be used to in Portugal. Um, and and if you're going to change that, it needs to be a, a gradual process and you can change it. You can you can certainly take a horse from Portugal that hasn't been turned out for the last five, six years and adapt them to the way that you want to manage them in England. But also you have to adapt a little bit to the horse as well. I think as owners, we have to adapt to the horses um, rather than always expecting them to adapt to us. <laughs> And I think that's really key in anything. So this isn't about Portugal v England or anything like that. It's about different cultures, different styles, different types of riding. And it's the same with racehorses. You know, they are brought up in a certain way and we have to bridge the gap to help them yeah. transition to a new way of thinking of being. And, and, you know, there's no right or wrong. And around the world, there's different cultures, different ways of doing things. They've all been created for that reason. And just, you know, nowadays, I feel like um, because of technology and travel and all that kind of thing, it's much easier now to cross pollinate between cultures. And, and there's no it, there's no right way or wrong way. It's one way is developed one and one area has been looked into and another way is developed another and another area is looked into. And it's how we can fuse, you know, the fusion of the two to get the best of, of both. And that sounds very much like what you're doing is kind of how do we get the best of both cultures for the benefit of the horse? Yeah. Okay, so tell us then, because this is the bit that I'm really interested in, about the things like the parades and the festivals and that kind of thing. That is it Goliga, Galaga? Golga. Golga, yeah. that's it. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's, I think that's the one that most people have, have heard of, is it not? Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that for, for anyone who's, who's never come across this kind of real party atmosphere, party vibe that they have with their horses out there. Yeah, so I actually lived in Golga for the seven years that I was out there um, and it was going to Golga Fair uh, one year when I'd been going out with Paolo for about a year that made me think, oh, I could, could live out here, this would be good. 
Um, and that's what I mean by the fact that it's just, it's a part of the Portuguese. Um, it's very hard to go to Portugal and not in some way have a, have a, um, an experience with horses. It's very, it's very much in their blood. And Golga is, um, named the capital of the horse. It's basically a, a village, um, a sort of large village, um, where, uh, traditionally, and I'm gonna show my, uh, forgetful brain now. It was originally a horse market um, and a kind of agricultural market. And over the years, it's evolved to become now quite a um, kind of a commercial time of year. I mean, if you're a professional horse person over in Portugal, Golga is your busiest time of year. It's when you're going to be selling the most horses, meeting the most clients. Um, so it's, it really is the kind of main event of the year in Portugal if you're in the horse world. But also it's a massive part of... Um, you know, people who just love the country or people who want a day out to see the horses, you know, it's somewhere that, you know, you have both horsey and non-horsey people um, coming to Golga during the fair. Um, and it's something that they really, really love. They, you know, they, it's part of their tradition and their culture. Um, Golga itself is a little village. Um, in the middle of it is a big uh, communal arena, which anyone can turn up at any time and ride in. Um, around the outside of it is a track and during Golga Fair, um, breeders from all over the country can, uh, they sort of own plots um, that are spread around the outside of the arena um, and they kind of put up their little casettas and the whole point of these is for them to receive clients and um, uh, yeah, host host clients, invite people to to learn about the horses that they're breeding. Some of them will have stands alongside their casettas. Um, kind of displaying examples of their breed. So it might be their stallions or it might be their young stock or um, whichever whichever horse, it could be horses for sale. Um, so, uh, so during the fair, there'll be events going on in this main arena in the middle of the arena, um, the middle of the town, uh, a kind of parade track around the outside of that. Um, and you could have... 7,000 horses in Golga during Golga Horse Fair. Um, when you visit Golga the rest of the year, it's kind of like tumble, tumbleweed city. There's no no one really around. There's a couple of people who are based there all year round. So you do see the odd horse and things, but um, it's a very, very quiet town the rest of the year. Um, and then at Golga Hall at that time of year in no beginning of November, kind of anyone who doesn't want to be there during the fair moves out, rents their house out to, you know, it's, you can rent them from England, you can go and stay, it's kind of like an Airbnb situation. Um, and they kind of get the, get the, <laughs> they turn up and they clean up their house. Some people have houses there that they would only visit for Golga Horse Fair. So it's kind of like a, a holiday home. They open up the houses, the whole town comes to life. I actually, my favorite time of the year would be the two weeks leading up to Golga Horse Fair because the whole town would kind of come to life. People would be bringing things in to set up stands. The casettas would all be going up um, and they're all kind of opening up their yards behind each house you know the front of the house might look like a door and four windows and then a garage door but actually if you go through the garage door there's stabling for 10 horses at the back of it um and or they might just open up the garage door and there's stables for three horses in inside their garage but most of the houses in Golga have a yard behind them um and yeah the horses start arriving and the, the whole town just turns into kind of horsey heaven I guess <laughs> but still seem it still has that kind of 
uh, vibe about it that's very traditional. You know, there's um, roasted chestnuts and smoke and traditional Portuguese music and good food. And everyone is just, it's just very buzzy. It's a very um, community spirited kind of, you know, the whole horse world in Portugal gets together for those two weeks of the year. I mean, my husband, pa uh, Paolo, is 43 and he missed his first Golba Horse Fair since he was seven last year for the first time in his life. Um, and that's that's the same for pretty much all of them. You know, they they all go to Golga for those two weeks of the year and they spend those whole two weeks immersed in horses and clients and seeing each other and drinking until <laughs> eight o'clock in the morning, literally. Horses inside nightclubs. Um, yeah, it's just a kind of rolling party for 12 days, really, but also a very serious time of year for for business as well. Wow, that sounds incredible. And presumably this year, did it? Uh, presumably, did it happen, or was this the year that everyone missed? No, it's been cancelled for the first time ever, I believe, this year. Yeah, we missed it for another reason last year, and I can't actually remember why that was. Um, now, but um, it could have been something to do with working equitation. I might have scheduled something to do with working equitation for the same weekend. Um, but no, I believe it's, it has been cancelled this year for the first time ever. I believe. Yeah. Wow. That must have been a real blow to the community to, you know, I mean, everyone's been feeling our traditional things have been cancelled and, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm missing Olympia already. I'm, I'm like, yeah. oh, it's not happening, you know, and it's that same sort of thing, isn't it? It's about getting together and connecting with people and, and having the horses. So um, it sounds amazing. And um, it sounds like probably next year it's going to be even more rammed because people yeah. are going to be desperate to get out there and go out there. So I want to know the Lusitano breed. Okay. Um, obviously, they're all out there. They're showcasing them. They, you know, there's these big fairs and parties and opportunities to do it. Things. But what is it about the actual the breed that you love? What is it that 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 means it's you know the Lusos are are where you're at rather than having gone into the Warbloods or something like that? Because that would be an opportunity if you wanted to do that, no doubt. I mean, my introduction to Lusitanos was very much through Paolo. Um, whether I would have ever found Lusitanos and become um, specifically involved in them if I hadn't met Paolo, I don't know. Um, I remember when we first met, kind of making a bit of a snooty comment about his um, Spanish white horses and um, him getting really cross with me about it. Um, but now I wouldn't go back to anything else I mean I love everything about them I love their temperaments they are real work animals you know they're tough they're brave they're willing um and they they want to work for you it, I, I really truly believe that Lusitanos are really only happy when they're working um we've got we've had the experience of um, horses coming over and perhaps being given rest and I think it's very unsettling for them to you know people occasionally give them a time a period of time to settle into England and you know climatize to the the different kind of the differences between Portugal and England and I think it very quickly kind of has a, a mental effect on them and I think that they the work keeps them keeps them sane keeps them happy and also we have um you know horses that we've retired at kind of mid-20s who who I mean, they're okay retired, but they they would happily still be working if they were physically able to. Um, I like them because I always describe them a little bit like the Labrador of the horse world. They're kind of good doers. They like to work. Uh, they're kind of chilled out. Lots of people think that they're kind of hot, highly strung horses. They're not. They're not a horse or... 
they're not a horse that's kind of switched off. You wouldn't kind of compare them to perhaps some of the other breeds that you could say, you know, you could put um, a five-year-old on them and go out hacking. You do have Lusitanos that you could do with that with, but they are very much working animals. You know, they're alert, they're sensitive, they, um, they're inquisitive. Um, there's very lots of different lines within the breed and I like the fact that you can kind of spot very strong characteristics within those lines and that they've been maintained as much as the, the breed is evolving to become um, more of a sport horse and more functional in kind of today's modern um, demands of what we want for horses to do. Um, they are still maintaining the traditional look of the Lusitano and also the traditional characteristics. So there are characteristics um, in say the more bullfighting lines that you um, can still very much see um, today and I like that I like the fact that they um, you know they have the closed blood book and everything that, that's born has to be DNA tested against um, you know their supposed mother and father um, and uh, you, you can only have a horse enter into the Lusitano APSL stud book if it has been proven to be um, from those from those bloodlines so or from that mare and that stallion um and i like that i think it's i think it's important to maintain those things you know i, I suppose it reflects a little bit into working equitation i think that the sport has to revolve evolve but also we must maintain those kind of fundamental rules of what the sport is um and with the lusitano the sport the, the horse needs to evolve the breed needs to evolve to become um, more successful in uh, whether it's dressage or show jumping or eventing or just as riding, you know, functional riding horses for for amateurs. Um, but also, I think it's really important that they maintain those strong characteristics within the breed. Um, and I, yeah, I, I just I love them. I wouldn't go back to anything else. I think also as riding horses, um, they're comfortable. They're you know, then when you're sat on a Lusitano, it's generally a lot less <laughs> um it's not as hard work as when you're sat on a kind of big stonking warm blood that you're trying to squash together <laughs> and so a lot of people think oh okay you know well lusos we see them in doing dressage we see them doing things like working egg we see them in parade and showing and, and things like that um we don't really see them out doing other other sports and things and presumably they're they're like a horse aren't they you know like there's no reason why they can't it's just they haven't been picked for those kind of characteristics but having heard what you've just described it sounds like they're actually great all-rounders is there any kind of understanding that you've got as to what why they're perhaps more in the dressage world or we see them more prevalent in those kind of areas maybe um i think definitely you have more lusitanos out there who excel in dressage than show jumping i mean I'm, my knowledge of perhaps of venting and um show jumping isn't the best obviously uh, I don't have as much knowledge in those areas as I perhaps do in dressage and working equitation. We've had really successful. I mean, John Whitaker had New Valero, who was a Lusitano, and he was one of his um, best Grand Prix horses. I think in eventing, perhaps what holds them back a little bit would be ground cover and the canter. They're not they're they're not horses that are made to gallop. Um, so obviously that would be quite a big hindrance um, in that area. It's a shame because I think they would have the 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 attitude for it. You know, they are very much war horses. Um, and they're bold and they're brave. You know, Paolo always says, if you if you canter a Lusitano into a wall, a good one will just go straight through it kind of thing. Um, obviously, I'm not suggesting you do that. But so they should have the boldness and the braveness for eventing. But I think they just don't have the ground cover and, and the, you know, they're not horses that are made to gallop. 
Um, I think probably also dressage is more um, traditional in Portugal. Um, and so therefore the Portuguese riders have evolved into com from traditional classical dressage into competition dressage and therefore they've been promoting the breed in competition dressage more than perhaps in other disciplines. Um, but you ha I mean, there's a lot of Lusitanos doing really, really well in dressage now and the Portuguese team are becoming um, very good. They've got some really good riders and some really good horses. Um, and also with parkbreds as well, there's some really good mixes of Lusitanos with warm bloods that um, are starting to do really well on kind of the world stage. And I, I really do believe that we're going to see more and more of them. Cool. Thanks. That's, that's interesting because um, I'm just always intrigued as to why we think it's the case. So that makes total sense then is that actually kind of traditionally that was where they came from, that kind of side of things. And so it makes sense as to why that's where they're at now. So um, there's there's something I hope I, I don't know if you can answer this. Or not, I'm going to ask you now. There's something about the dressage world. So we've got the very Germanic dressage way, Dutch, German, that kind of side of things. That's one kind of and it even have different scales of training, doesn't it? To the more Spanish, French, classical classical side yeah. again has a different scale of training and um there's always this thing isn't there in dressage particularly in, in in england about you know all judges don't like the the spanish breeds or the pre's or the luthos or whatever you want to whatever you want to say it is you know or they don't like their way of moving or they don't like their way of going but actually that's what they were bred for and that's 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 the background have you got any insight into that sort of um, you may not have the answer as to why, but do you do you ever get a sense of that? Do you ever come across that or hear people saying that kind of thing in, in the dressage world in England? I think, again, it kind of comes down to not gen trying not to generalise too much. Um, I think that you have judges who are perhaps a little closed-minded and struggle to understand something new that they've not seen before. Um, I think you also have judges who are really open-minded and really like the breed. I mean, Stephen Clark, for one, I think, um, was one of the kind of first ones to really recognise the breed as um, having really good attributes about it that should be, you know, rewarded. And um, at the same time, also, right back down at the other end of the scale, if you're looking at amateur riders kind of going to local competitions and things, we as riders kind of, I know we see it a lot and I'm not saying that I, I don't do it, but um, I certainly try not to. I think we look for excuses for perhaps our own disappointments. You can probably give a better an analysis of this. Um, I think it's very easy for us to have a Lusitano go out and do a competition. It doesn't go so well. We don't really get the mark we wanted. And the easiest way to, to kind of justify that is, oh, the judge doesn't like Lusitanos. I think because we're quite a small minority, as in riding Lusitanos in, you know, in amongst a, a world full of dressage horses, um, sorry, warm bloods and other breeds, it's quite easy for us to just go, ah, oh, they don't like Lusitanos. But in reality, there are actually some not very good Lusitanos. You know, there are actually some not very good dressage tests being ridden. And I think we can't, we can't just say, we can't just always put it down to the fact that the judge doesn't like the breed or the judge, you know, and use that as an excuse. I think we have to see, I think we have to work really hard to promote the breed in a way that, you know, you put the breed in front of these of judges or um, riders or trainers and you say to them, this is a horse, this is a horse. Well, you know, it might be a Lusitano, but it's a horse. It's got four legs, it's got a neck, it's got a head, it's got, you know, it's either a good horse or a bad horse. It doesn't really matter if it's a Lusitano or not. 
Um, and if as soon as we kind of get rid of that, um, uh, what's the word, that kind of um, limitation in our own minds of this is a Lusitano and I'm being judged differently because I'm on a Lusitano, um, I think we've just got to get that out of our heads and just think I'm on a horse. Yes, I love that. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> because that's, I mean, that's the reality of it. We're on a horse. doesn't matter what breed it is. And it's the same. We get the same with cobs, get the same with racehorse. We get all the yeah, exactly. people didn't like it because it got feathers. People didn't like it because it was a racehorse. People didn't like it because of this. People, you know, it's so easy for people to say, well, it's not a warm blood, so the judge didn't like it. Well, no, it just wasn't moving correctly, or it wasn't soft enough, or it wasn't through enough, or it wasn't off the aids enough, or it wasn't obedient enough. You know, actually, that's that's what it's really about. Yeah. And, I mean, one of the questions that came through is, is it is it frustrating that dressage seems to influence? Sorry, hang on. A is it frustrating that dressage judges seem to judge Lusitano's poor on the warm blows due to different movement? But like you've just said, it's it's probably not due to a different movement. It's just that actually it might not be the correct movement for what that judge is looking for, or it might look very flashy but not be very through. It's a bit like yeah. you know, medium trots nowadays in warm bloods can be a bit like this, can't it? All flicky out the front, but nothing going on behind. And it looks impressive to the untrained eye, but actually it's not correct. And yeah. when you put it up, other people get annoyed about it, obviously, because it's been bred to look that one. So yeah, cool. Well, thank you for clarifying that. I think it's so <laughs> it's so key that we clarify some of this stuff that these generalizations and these um, you know remarks that that are made actually sometimes are excuses. They're not yeah. they're not real. They don't actually yeah. exist. And the problem with we call them filters, the prejudice, judgment, that kind of thing. The problem with those filters is they start to filter through to people, and people say, oh, you know. Um, well, let's take Black Lives Matter, for instance. It's the same sort of thing, isn't it? It's like, oh, well, they're all being persecuted because of this, that, and the other. And and it's like, well, actually, people are being persecuted, yes. Now, you know, some are in a minority and we need to support that. But at the same time, they can also stand up in their, you know, in training their horses well, in showing them off well, and, and push through that prejudice. It doesn't have to be there. Yeah. Cool. I think I think you can you know if you want to you can make an excuse for anything yeah. obviously I, I'm not saying I've never heard a judge speak the words I don't like Iberian horses I don't like Lusitanos but we have that in all areas of our lives and you just kind of have to forget about them and you know if if it was an unfair mark on that day it was an unfair mark on that day and just you know work for the next one because at the end of the day um you know, it can ha it can happen in any area of our lives. And we've chosen to do a sport that comes down to one person's or in a lot of cases, one person's personal opinion. If you want to do a sport where it's just black and white and you either, you know, do it or don't do it, show jumping's the one for you because the pole either stays up or gets knocked down. You know, you're up against a clock. So you either get the time you want or you don't. In dressage, we are putting ourselves on a platform where we are out. We are there to be judged by this person, and you have to accept that people have preferences and have opinions and have their own minds. And we hope that over time, judges will become more, you know, open-minded and won't see an Iberian or Lusitano horse come into the arena and go, "Oh, it's an Iberian." They'll just say, "Oh, it's a horse." <laughs> Absolutely, and actually, you know, I mean, I've been so lucky to sit next to Stephen Clark and some other incredible FEI judges at international competitions and and either right or button push for them. Yeah. And they are not sat there going, oh, Salusa, here we go. You know, yeah. they, they're not doing that. They are yeah. not doing that. They are marking what they see in front of them. And I have seen them be to put them up first. You know, I've seen them win. Yeah. Them, and we're all sat there, jaws like dropped, like, wow, look at that horse, isn't it incredible? 
because of the way it's been trained and produced and it's done the test correctly. Now, yeah. every breed, every horse is going to have things that it's better at and things that it's not so good at. And, and that's like any athlete, isn't it? We've got to work with their their strengths and their weaknesses. And, and that's what it's all about. It doesn't matter what the horse is. It's, it's working with their brain and their body. And, and even the most beautiful um, well-bred horse can, can come out sometimes with an issue that's like a confirmational thing that's going to hold them back yeah. or a training thing or something happened when they were younger and you know so it doesn't actually there's breeding does not guarantee anything does it I mean God, no that easy. everyone would be doing it beautifully wouldn't they yeah <laughs> okay so thinking of the Olympics 2020 gorgeous lucitano passage soft and relaxed as opposed to tight leg flashing yeah that is that kind of thing isn't it it's it's the judge is learning what they're really looking for and like I'm yeah. not like the judge so I can't and the Lusitanos really certainly do now and perhaps they always will do excel at the higher levels because their their kind of show pieces are the Piaf the Passage the Pouettes anything involving collection um they excel at their downfalls are always their, their downfalls have traditionally been ground cover in the extended trot and the extended canter, their walks. But there are, but there are breeders in Portugal who are working really, really hard and are successfully trying to improve these traits within the breed. And then, I, and, and I think as that happens, um, we will see those those things changing, and they will they will go higher up. And I think that they will eventually be kind of right at the top of the sport. Okay, so bringing us then on to, so that was very much dressage, and you've said they are working horses, they are intelligent, they are able to solve problems, they do all these different things in Portugal. Tell us then about the roots of this thing we've talked about, well, you and I haven't, but um, we've talked about many times on here, and, and, and people have seen on my Facebook page, and if they follow my personal stuff, they'll have seen me having a go as well. This thing called working equitation then. So tell us about the roots of that, from where it came from and why these breeds are the way they are from this concept of working the horses? Uh, so working equitation began in about 97 or 98, so it's very young. Um, it was started by Portugal, Spain, Italy and France. Um, and it was basically um, kind of evolved as the idea of making a dis creating a discipline that um, reflected the kind of the, the functional use of the of horses in those countries, the traditional use of the horses in those countries. So it very much it's very much much based around using horses for herding cattle, but also just general farm work. So they would be using horses on the farm um, to do whatever they were doing, um, and they, this is how the sport has been kind of developed as um, as a test to see how useful horses these particular horses or whichever horses were competing would be at doing that job. Obviously it's had to change <laughs> over time. Um, and they are working that we work kind of as governing bodies throughout all the countries work very hard to maintain um, the kind of roots and not let it turn into dressage, you know, per se, we want to maintain it very much as something that is to do with whether the horse is functional as a working animal rather than is the horse flashy and, you know, it, would it go into a dressage arena and do as well? Um, and also you have to kind of, it's it's not, you, unless you put horses out in the field and actually make them ride around the countryside actually doing the job, you kind of, you're kind of having to simulate it in, in the way we use the obstacles. But yeah, it's very much based on the working animal and testing whether the horse would be functional as a working animal. 
Okay, and we've talked about um, obviously the Lusso breed and the Spanish and things like that. But actually, um, if we think about working functionality, we've had a lot of those in the UK as well, in Britain, you know, the, and, and Ireland, and and you know our cobs and our and our yeah. Irish horses and our and you know those kind of um, horses that actually were working the land in England, perhaps in a slightly different way to our, yeah. you know, Portugal and Spain and in France. So. Um, tell us then about how actually, you know, it, it is open to any breed, isn't it? Because it's about that. But yeah, how, and how can the non-traditional horses be a part of the sport? Because I know you're seeing more and more of them come through. And, and I've got an Irish sports horse, so I just kind of, I want, I want to hear this. <laughs> because he's loving it. He is loving it. Yeah. So I find that the the kind of... Um, uh, I, don't, I want, want to. I don't want to say this in kind of a derogatory way, but in the lower levels, kind of amateur um, uh, uh, equestrian world in this country, people are generally quite open-minded. They're up for trying anything, um, and as long as we kind of get rid of this this idea that you need an Iberian horse, which we still occasionally hear, you know, people will get in touch with us as the association and say. I really want to do working equitation, but do I need to have a Lusitana or do I need to be on a Spanish horse? You absolutely don't. And that's always what we tell them. And we've had um, we had a Welsh section C on the on the senior team in 2016 in Munich. Um, and we sorry, 2000. Yeah, 2016 in Munich. Um, and we had a Connemara on our junior team last year. So you absolutely don't need um, to be on an Iberian horse. Um, it's the it's actually the higher levels and the kind of professional riders that I hear that most that from most. Um, I really um, I really work to try and bring in riders from other sports for for a few reasons. But I think I think what the sport could really do with at the moment is a few people who perhaps have a bit of a name for themselves already being brave enough to come and try something different. So I've approached some dressage riders that I know and things and said to them, you know, do you come and have a go at it? You know, either we can set up for you to have a, a lesson or we could do some kind of like masterclass thing with an audience or we can do something online. Um, and the, almost always the first response is, oh, I don't have a horse that can do it. And I, my answer to that is, well, if you've got a horse that can walk, trot and canter, you've got a horse that you can do it. Okay, once you go out of novice level, then you're talking about a horse that can walk, trot and canter and do some lateral work and do a flying change. But this is the same as dressage. If you've got a pre-St. George dressage horse, you can absolutely do um, an, an inter-A level working equitation course. The thing that's going to decide whether you're gonna, that horse is going to excel at that at that um at working equitation as well will be the elasticity how easily the horse can collect and um sorry extend and collect very easily um whether that horse is you know i'm not going to say that it's as easy to get round an ease of handling course on a great big 17 hand warm blood as it would be on a 15-3 warm blood um you know because the obstacles are very close together you are you know restricted for um space and things but it's to do with the athleticism of the horse and we've had lusitanos who we've tried both in dressage and working equitation and we've had lusitanos that we've decided are far better suited to dressage because they need the space they don't have the the elasticity in their back to be able to extend in a short space you know extend quickly in a short um a short space and then collect very quickly in order to do you know tight turns around a barrel or into the pen or something like that um so that's going to decide whether the horse is very good at working equitation or whether they can just do working equitation but any horse can do working equitation especially if it's doing dressage well um and actually 
working equitation can be really beneficial to the horse and the rider if you're if you're a serious dressage competitor doing a bit of working equitation for one season or perhaps on the side of your dressage can actually be really beneficial for the brain of the horse um you know they see a lot of uh, working equitation kind of introduces them to the real world a little bit better, a little bit more than working and than dressage. And we've had horses come into working equitation um, from kind of having done a couple of years of dressage, or perhaps the owner was thinking that they were going to go down the dressage path. And for the first two competitions, they haven't managed to get into the arena with the obstacles. But then three years later, they're the kind of horse that you can take anywhere and do anything with. I mean, literally anything, you know, you travel them abroad and put them in a new arena with new obstacles and trees and, you know, um, uh, speakers and, you know, all of that kind of thing. And they just accept it. And I think working equitation is really good for the horse's brain in that way is that um, it teaches them to focus when there's a lot of distraction. So the temperament is also really important when you're kind of working out whether a horse is going to be very very good at working equitation or whether they're just going to be able to do working equitation but but I think uh, focus is really important for the horses um, in working equitation because they've got to they've got to deal with all the distractions and all the things that are going on around them or perhaps you know are around them as in object obstacles that are in the arena with them but they have to be absolutely focused on the rider and in the speed they've got to be able to wake up and be ready to go fast because of the music and because of the atmosphere and stuff but then they've also got to be able to switch off straight away when they get to something like the gate and calm back down immediately um in order for the rider to be able to perform the gate properly before they go again because if you've got a horse that loses its head in the speed because you've allowed him to gallop on a little bit um you're going to have lots of mistakes but i think that working equitation i don't think i don't think anyone should write off working equitation because they have a horse that tends to behave like that because i think working equitation is can be a training aid to to resolve those problems um and we see it all the time you know we work with the development squad um over long periods of time you know we have riders that are on the development squad and have been there for five five years and we've massively changed you know we've managed to massively change um horses and find um techniques of managing their their temperament and you know and riders have to be adaptable good riders have to be adaptable they have to be able to think outside the box you know, one of my favorite sayings from kira uh, kirkland is if you always do what you've always done you'll always get what you've always got if you if you just set yourself rules and say my horse must fit in with these rules you know some horses aren't going to fit in with those rules you have to think this doesn't work with this horse let's change it and I think as long as you have that kind of um mentality you can really you can go and do anything with your horse it's just about whether they've got the added edge to to excel at it you know to a very very high level but okay so tell us just a little bit um for anyone who hasn't heard what it involves what it involves and I also want to know what it involves, but what it is that means you're so passionate about it because you lit up then. You absolutely lit up. <laughs> you, talk about it, you talk about what makes a good horse, you talk about all the different things. And and so you clearly, I mean, you must have a passion for it. To be the president of yeah. the association, you must be. What is it? Where does that passion come from? And what is it that's included in the sport? So two questions at once there, but I think they'll go together. So the sport is th uh, three phases. First phase is a dressage test. Um, nothing you know, out of the ordinary, uh, it's basically um, very, very similar to your British dressage tests. 
Um, all the tests are performed in a 20 by 40 arena and we only have one test per level. So if you're a novice rider, you will do the same test all, um, all year or throughout, you know, for as long as you're in novice, mainly because you also have the other two phases and those tests change every competition. So we don't want to make it too difficult for people. Um, so you have your dressage test. The second phase is the ease of handling. Um, and it's an obstacle course of between nine and 12 obstacles, always the same obstacles. So it's written in the rules what those obstacles can be, but you may have all of them or you may have some of them. They will change in appearance as well. So one day, you know, one competition, you might have a very basic bridge that's just a step up and, a, you know, walk along, step down. The next competition, you might have a bridge with sides and flowers and bushes and everything else. Um, so there's a lot of variation in that kind of in that phase. Um, in that phase, you basically perform each obstacle and you are given a mark out of 10 for each obstacle. And there are very specific ways in which each obstacle has to be performed at each level. <clears throat> As you go up the levels, it gets very difficult. I, mean, I think the, the biggest misconception of working equitation is that it's easy. It is not easy. <laughs> um, so very specific ways in which they've got to be um, performed. The judge will give you a mark out of 10 for each um, for each obstacle. And then you have your collected marks at the end, uh, which is a mark for the course. So how you interpreted the course, the lines that you took between the obstacles, how good your transitions were between the obstacles, um, that kind of thing. And then you have your submission and rider and um, um, all the normal collected marks that you have in a dressage test. The third phase is the speed. So same obstacles as in these of handing course, normally a change of course, though. And in this phase, you are just literally up against the clock. Um, there's lots of different ways that time can be um, added. So you might um, get penalties for knocking an obstacle over. Um, but then you can also get bonus seconds taken off your time for things like collecting the ring off the ball. Um, there are lots of there are also lots of ways to be eliminated. <laughs> Um, and this is sometimes what we fear puts riders off the sport. But I, I, I'm only aware of a very small handful of people who have um, been put off the sport by the eliminations um, side of it. And again, the amount of conversations I've had with people about whether we should change these rules, you know, to make it more inviting and less difficult and things. And I, it's something that I'm fairly adamant on is, you know, it's the it's one of the fundamental things of working equitation. We're not looking to make this sport easy. We want it to be inviting, but it is very technical. It's very demanding on the riders and it's very demanding on the horses, um, or more so as you go up the levels. Um, the eliminations are pretty clear. It just takes people a while to get used to them. And everyone from your first time, first time rider in a competition, right up to our team riders, still get eliminated for things sometimes. Um, and most of the time you don't get eliminated for the same thing twice because you kick yourself so hard afterwards. Um, so what was the second question? One, Sorry, Jenny. To, uh, I'll give you a chance to think about the second question then. So um, one of the things that I quite liked about it, though, we talk about we're talking about elimination, but it's not like in eventing where if you are eliminated from a phase, you can't do the others. That's the other thing yeah. that I really like about it. You could be eliminated in any phase for any of the. And someone did say what causes it, but that's in the rule book, like lots of things. Yeah. Um, you just get to know them, don't you? But I love the fact that actually you could be eliminated from the speed round, but like actually if your dressage was stonking and your ease of handling was incredible, you could still potentially win. Like, you you know, you're not eliminated from the competition, are you? Like, no. so I really like that because yeah. 
there's nothing worse than going to a one-day event and going eventing and getting eliminated for something stupid happened in the dress and you can't do the rest of it or you know going all the way through doing really well getting eliminated in the cross country and that's it like that end yeah. off game over your bottom of the score sheet you could still even potentially get placed in these couldn't you yeah absolutely it's quite unlikely that you'll win because if if you've been eliminated from one of the phases you then can't pass above anyone who has completed all three phases so you always when you see a final um uh, final placing sheet at the end of a competition the riders who have completed all three of the phases will be at the top always and then under you know um the riders who have been eliminated from one phase or two phases will always be under them so you could potentially have more points from your dressage and your ease of handling and, and but have been eliminated in the speed and come lower down the the placings list than someone who um, had, came last in the dressage use of handling and speed, but they completed all three. But that's kind of a bit of the beauty of it as well, because it's not just the te- it's not just a case of are you really good at the dressage, are you really good at the ease of handling, and are you really good at the speed. It's actually can, are you able to complete all of them? Because we've also had the argument of you know do we do we allow people to not attempt obstacles like they do in trek? You know, do if we have someone who knows that their horse is scared of the bull. Um, do we allow them to not do that obstacle and we just give them a zero for the for them for that obstacle and it's another thing that I feel very strongly mustn't kind of creep in because the whole point of this sport is that the horse will um, deal with and accept anything that is asked of them and they don't necessarily have to do it fantastically but they have to do it so even if in the ease of handling you're supposed to sedately walk over the bridge if you end up having to you know go over the bridge at speed in order to get over um it can be a big mess and you might get a three or a four for it but the fact that you've completed it means that you will potentially come above someone who's done all the obstacles fantastically but cut inside a marker that they shouldn't have cut in front inside of or um haven't completed the third circle of the three barrels it's hard it's harsh to the people who have done the obstacles really well but it's a i mean it is an absolute complete test of physical capability of the horse and rider but also massively the mental capability of the rider as well and so just quickly just running out of time a little bit here the mental Sorry. side of it then obviously no no it's great i've been getting you talking it's fantastic. <laughs> um <clears throat> the side of it then, obviously this is the part that i am fascinated by what would you say are the mental skills that people develop or need to develop in order to be great working at riders resilience I think you've really got to be able to bounce back Um, because you've got the three phases. You might have a disastrous, horrendous dressage test. And that afternoon you've got to get on and do an an ease of handling course and do it well. Um, So definitely resilience. And also the fact that you come back after you've been eliminated, you've got to accept that you made a mistake and you're not going to do it again. And you come back and compete next time. So I think resilience, I think you've got to um, be focused because I think for any competition, I think for any kind of competing, you have to have focus. Um, I think you also, um, I think you've got to um, know yourself and find strategies that work for you that um, enable you to memorise an ease of handling course or a speed course in a very short space of time. You you will have a half hour course walk um, before your ease of handling or speed test. And in that half an hour, you have you have to learn the course and you've got to come up with strategies of doing this. You know, we have some riders who was in there and you know within the the half an hour they're kind of in and out in 10 minutes you have other riders who spend every minute of that half an hour still in there they might walk the course twice 
Um, and then at the end, they stand in the corner and kind of go through it in their head. We have other riders who walk around with a camera and video the course so that they can go back to the stables and watch it again. We have other riders who, you know, people have lots of different um, strategies to do it. And um, what I always say to people when they're new to the sport is use the half an hour. Don't assume that, or even when they're not new to the sport with our squad riders, you know, don't get complacent. Don't think that because you've done this a hundred times, you don't need to go in there and walk the course exactly how it's walked. You know, I learned that kind of thing in Portugal. Um, some of the most famous, um, well-known, successful working equitation riders, they walk the courses as if they're on the horse. They do the kind of comical flying change in between the, the slalom poles or the, the barrels. They walk into the bell corridor, ring the bell and rain back out. They walk backwards. It's all it's about imprinting it on your brain. Um, and yeah, I think I think it's really important to kind of know your own brain, know the way, know the way that your brain works, what, what you, the strategies that work for you and, and learn how to um, adapt again, I suppose, adapt to, to um, the, yeah, the sport the same way that you would, you, you would do with a dressage test, I guess. So it really is <coughs> fabulous mix. And this is why I love it so much actually, because it is a fab mix of horse and rider skill, partnership and communication massively um and you know mental for horse and rider yeah uh, you know getting you both thinking and when that comes together it looks easy you know i've yeah. seen guys doing it and that it looks easy because that's all come together but they've been doing it for donkey's years you know they've been doing it a long time they they really know the sport inside out they know themselves they know their horses they bought normally they bought the horse up from a youngster through the levels or something like that perhaps um and then you see the novice guys and you can really see the difference just like in any other of our disciplines in the sport. Yeah. You really see the difference because they haven't learned that stuff yet. Um, but I tell you the other thing that I really love about working petition is that the fact that the rules are upheld and it's, it is black and white and there is no allowances or changes. There's, it's very clear. And, and it's very clear what everyone has to do. Like even things like, you know, you have to be platted and turned out correctly for all three phases. And you even have to be in your kit, don't you, to walk the course. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the fact that you have to be turned out correctly for the, the prize givings as well. Yeah. Uh, they're, not, they're unmounted though, aren't they normally? No, normally they are mounted. Um, occasionally we do them unmounted, but normally they are mounted, yeah. A couple of times I've seen you guys, it was for various yeah. Been unmounted, but okay, that's cool. So, and 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 it's all part of it, isn't it? It's all part of the experience. And what I have seen from what I have seen in that is it actually creates quite a close knit community. Although they are competitive, my God, they are competitive. They're such a lovely bunch. Yeah. Because everyone like no, it's a bit like just like you say, training the horse, isn't it? Everyone knows what's expected, and they know the parameters, and they know what's in them and what's out of them, and that's what therefore everyone comes together to do. Yeah. And, yeah, and absolutely. Um, well, I guess it's kind of a reflection of my personality because that isn't working equitation necessarily worldwide. It's run differently in every in every um, in every country. I, uh, it's me that's been very strict about the fact that you know people will turn up in their competition dress for course walks, and we will do prize givings in course. Um, sorry, prize givings in competition dress, and you know basically very clearly this is what is expected of you and this is what is is will not be accepted and i think uh, i might be called a, a control freak 
maybe. Um, but I think I think it just makes it easier, really. I think I think that because of that, we have very little conflict within the sport and within the riders. I think that everyone, I hope that everyone feels like it's a fair playing field all the time. Um, I work really hard to to keep it like that. I've, I work really hard to make it a supportive, fair sport for everybody. Um, and I think if you do that, and if I do that, it makes everyone else's you know, everyone else's experience of it a lot nicer and my life a lot easier. Awesome, cool, I love that. So, um, someone has actually said, I had a few years ago and it was great fun, but harder than it looks, yes, I, I totally agree. Um, I'd love to try it again. Are there specific groups or instructors out there? Because at the time, no one's really heard about it much. So, how do people get involved then? How do they get involved in this? So the best way to start getting involved is to visit the uh, website www.workingequitationgb.com. Uh, on there, there's an approved instructors page where I think we have around, I think there's around 30 instructors now who are approved qualified instructors. They've all attended our instructors courses. Um, they should be very clear on the rules and, and you know what's expected at each levels. I would go onto the website, find an instructor in your area. Um, keep an eye on the Facebook page because we do try to keep that updated with clinics and things that are going on um, and also the training diary on the on the website bear with us we are working really hard to get to kind of get to everyone it's, it's really hard to cater for every area of the country and it, we are very reliant on people kind of coming to us and saying I'm an instructor I'm from this area I want to become a working equitation instructor um, but we're getting there. I really think that um, last year was a was a big step forward in that kind of in that kind of way, and that's why this year has been such a disappointment for me um, personally because I felt like at the end of last year we were in a really really good kind of place and position to spread our wings a bit this year, um, and then we were unable to do any of it. So I hope that we can kind of start off from the same block um, at the beginning of next year. Um, but yeah, definitely get in touch with us, um, either through the Facebook page or the website. Try to find an instructor in your area. If you can't find an instructor in your area on that list, please contact me because I might know someone else who isn't yet a qualified instructor but would be able to help you. And then come along to a competition. <laughs> And um, how often are the competitions normally? I mean, you know, I've been trying to navigate through it this year and, and obviously with lockdown and things, we haven't been able to do it. So I'm looking forward to next year's competition season. Where where are they normally held? And they're normally what, two day format, is it normally or not in a day? Uh, so we have two different types of, well, three different types of competition. We have national competitions, who are which are always over either two or three days. So you'd have the dressage test on the first day and then the ease of handling and speed on the second day or one on each if it was a three day. Um, they We tend to hold about seven of those throughout the year and they start around March and end around kind of end of October. Um, and they're kind of spread equally. I'd say there's, pro there's probably a few more kind of condensed into the June, July, August months, um, but they're fairly evenly spread, spread throughout kind of March to October. Regional competitions go on over one day normally, so you have all three phases in the one day. Um, there's no there's no restrictions on who can enter these competitions, by the way. It's just literally to do with the kind of um, boxes that those competitions have to tick in, in terms of... Um, uh, in terms of um, the setup for the riders, overnight stabling and all of that kind of thing. Um, so the regional competitions all on one day, we're working to do more of these, but we can only run these where we have the demand. So this is why it's really important that we um, 
what we were hoping to start doing at the beginning of this year, we start to track um, different areas of the country a lot more closely and how, how the sport is growing in those areas, hopefully through our qualified instructors, um, so that they then come back to us and say, I've got 15 riders here who are all ready for a competition and we can then run a, re a regional competition in that area. We've had situations in the past where someone's asked me to run a regional competition somewhere and we've organised it and then we've had four entrants and unfortunately we just, we can't, justify running competitions for that few amount of people but we hope that the more that the sport grows the more regional competitions we will be able to run and therefore it just becomes more and more accessible to people and people won't have to travel so far to come to the competitions um, and then the third time the third type of competition is just training competitions and they can pretty much be run um, by anyone who's involved in the sport so if an instructor wants to run a training competition they can do and um, they can judge that competition themselves so training competitions you won't have a qualified judge um, or a mem necessarily a member of um, ABWE there to kind of um, oversee the competition. Fab. So actually, potentially loads of opportunities to get involved going forward. And training wise, I know there's more clinics going on. Um, yeah. Certainly. So I'm in the southeast and there's some great stuff going on around here now. Um, there's a lot in the southwest as well, which is quite cool. Um, I'm sure there's lots all around the country. But, um, you know, for us in the south, there's definitely things going on. And but that's great that actually there's the training competitions and things as well, because obviously I'd never heard of this stuff because this year it didn't happen so, <laughs> and i mean a lot of the big the international competitions and things that do actually involve the the cattle and the uh, the cow cutting um they tend to go on at iberian shows and things do they or actually are they standalone in the uk no we didn't run the cattle phase for a long time i think i think last year was the first year we ran it in devon um and it just literally comes down to the the kind of <clears throat> the basic um uh difficulty in running that kind of competition there's all sorts of safety implications it's finding someone who has cows that are suitable to use because not all cows will respect horses cows can actually be quite aggressive when they want to be um and if you have a herd of cows that aren't used to being worked by horses it could potentially be quite dangerous so it's just taken us a long time to find an arena that will allow us to do it um uh um cows if a someone who has cows who will allow us to use the cows but also works the cows themselves with horses um that those are the main kind of the main two hurdles to overcome um and then obviously find a, sh a show or, or a venue that um is suitable to run it alongside and you know flair with the southwest siberian show it's been perfect because we actually found um the cows just down the road we managed to do some training with them a couple of months before so we vaguely knew the cows we knew the people we knew that they would be all right with the horses um, and it's been a brilliant venue to hold it at. And I think we'll we'll carry on doing that every year and perhaps bring it in as um, uh, perhaps do another a second one somewhere in the year. But it's quite a, it's quite a big thing to to organise. It's quite expensive um, and also involves like a fourth day or a third day if we were having two phases on one day. So it's not something that's going to come become regular in terms of become um, something that happens at every national competition but we hope to do it at least once or twice a year cool so those people that will have seen the videos of the cow cutting and things like that just so they know it's not a part of the competition at national regional no. training level <laughs> it's an international thing um, but it is really cool to watch um and you know must be great fun to take part in as well yeah it's great
Cool. Well, thank you so, so much. Um, if people want to get a hold of you, they want to know more about the Luso breed, they want to um, get a hold of you or speak to you about anything, how can they do that? So we've heard about working it, but then there's separately, what about yourself and your business? Uh, so we are QRP Dressage Lusitanos. You can find us on Facebook um, or find me on Facebook, Georgia Shown, and pop us a message or give us a call. I think my number's on the Facebook page as well. And we'll be more than happy to help with anything we can Lusitano related. Mega. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I never know how long I'm going to be talking to someone about and We've only scratched the surface yeah. <laughs> so many days. We've done an hour already. So we'll have to stop there. If anyone's got any questions, they can either ask them underneath this when this is published, or if you're listening in on the podcast, then get in touch with Georgia or myself via the things and go and have a look at the working invitation. And just, you know, go have a look, have a go, try it. Um, hopefully there'll be some competitions you can go watch soon and things like that as well, if you want to know more about it. But equally, you know, find out more about these breeds and um if we, we're looking outside of working and we talk about you know lusos themselves find out about them because they they're gorgeous they are just beautiful and i i love being around them and although i've got an irish sports horse, he's doing his best because he's great so he's having a go at, at <laughs> being a spanish irish <laughs> instead so um thank you so much um it's been an absolute thank pleasure you. and hopefully we'll hear more from you in the future and mm. see you out and about at some competitions Right. Thanks, Jenny. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. If you want to listen to more of them, then please do follow us in Apple, in Google and on Podbean. Hack Your Mindset with Jenny is the name of this podcast. So please do subscribe, follow us and we look forward to you listening into our next one. Bye, everyone. Who got the